Welcome to the Core Women Podcast, the place for women entrepreneurs, authors, and self-starters looking to build community and gain valuable insights through expert interviews with women at the top of their game. Join your host, podcaster, producer, expert coach, entrepreneur, and author, Dr. Summer Watson, as she aims to inspire and empower you through these candid conversations. Lean in and embrace the journey. It's time to start the show. Here's your host, Dr. Summer Watson. Today on the show, I would like to welcome Viva Asmalash, who is a consultant and speaker who helps mission-driven teams engage in more equitable, meaningful, and joyful work. She specializes in inclusive learning experiences, employee well-being, and culturally aware feedback training. She is also the co-founder of Liberation Labs, and has been published in the Harvard Business Review. We have so much to chat about today, Viva. So let's get right into this and welcome. I love it. Thank you, Summer. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Me too. I was very excited after we had our first conversation and I thought I can't wait for our next. So here we are. And before we delve into your professional journey, can you describe your life in one word thus far? Oh, I love this question so much, uh, mainly because I tend to be pretty <laughs> verbose. People that know me well know that. So this sort of forces me to drill it down to what's most important. So if I had to choose one word that has described my life and journey so far, I think the word I would choose is miraculous. I think miraculous really captures it. Just even stop to think about how I came into the world. It's, you know, my family is from Eritrea, a small country in East Africa. Um, I was born at really the height of the Eritrean and Ethiopian war um, at a time where many people were fleeing the country. My parents already had three children. Uh, I was absolutely the accident or surprise baby, depending on how you want to look at it. <laughs> I was born pretty late. I'm pretty sure that they thought that they were done um, having kids. And so anyhow, my mom, you know, she emigrated to the United States with three small kids, pregnant with me. Um, her husband, my dad was not with her at the time, right? So I can only imagine and have heard my whole childhood about all the obstacles and barriers that she navigated. And so, I mean, up to and even including, she didn't have a ride to the hospital when she went into labor with me. I mean, she had to ask a neighbor unexpectedly to take her to the hospital. So that has just been a consistent theme really throughout my life that um, I have been sort of faced with different experiences that have led to opportunities for learning and growth, um, sometimes through gritted teeth, right? Mm -hmm. Not really things that I wanted to, positions I wanted to be in, but, um, but yeah, I would say miraculous is really the word that captures it. It's like, the upside is that I have always known because of how I came into the world that I had something special to offer and something unique to offer, which by the way, I believe we all do, right? In different ways. And there has been a downside to that too, right? Which is that, and I think this is something that so many first-generation uh, children of immigrants face, which is this sometimes really intense pressure to make your parents' sacrifice worth it, right? Through the life that you have or the life that you lead, it's almost like this pressure to be have a miraculous life in some ways too, which can be really crushing at times if it's not tended to or, you know, channeled or processed in the right ways. 
but miraculous. That's the word I'm going with. I love it. And you're absolutely right. We all have something in our journeys to offer, but I think that's really a unique statement that you have to be miraculous as that first generation here in the United States. And how do you handle that? How do you absorb that? How do you live that? And how do you say it's okay to be just to be? Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I was lucky enough. I mean, my mom is just an incredible human being on so many levels and really one of a kind, but while she had aspirations for me and hopes for me, right. Um, I did a lot of things along my journey that were unexpected and unconventional. And while I knew they weren't, it's, they weren't the things that she necessarily wanted for me. She was still able to be at a place where she was happy about who who I was in the world and what she had instilled in me. And so I was really lucky to have that, like the expectation or the hope to succeed, but also the knowing that whatever I did, I would still be loved, accepted, celebrated. Um, Because I recognize that not, not everybody has that, right? Regardless of your cultural background. Absolutely. So let's talk about your past and where you grew up and some of the events and experiences throughout your life that have impacted you and guided you to where you are today in both your personal and professional life. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, it's timely because I'm um, expecting my first baby and I'm just about seven months at this point. So you do a lot of thinking um, around this time on your journey. And um, if I could, yeah, if I could back up a bit, I mean, I was uh, born and, and raised in California, um, born in Southern California, raised primarily in Northern California. Um, I, my earliest memories up until the age of about 11, I, we lived in a uh, predominantly white town. Um, and I think that that shaped so, so much of my lens, right? I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, we always had a lot of extended family around, which was helpful, but in our classes as kids, right, we were always one of, I mean, maybe the only, and sometimes maybe one of, you know, two or three non-white non-white kids. So I, it taught me at at a really young age, how to navigate spaces where most other people didn't look like me, didn't go home and eat what I ate, uh, didn't speak the language that we spoke, right. All of, all of these different layers. And once I hit about middle school, we moved to a town, we moved to Sacramento, which was, is far more diverse. And I was, at the time I would just was, you know, kids hate to leave what they already know. Right. (laughs) But, but when I look back, I'm so deeply grateful for that, that I had the chance to move to a place where there were uh, kids who look like me, absolutely. But kids that from all different cultural backgrounds, right. And to during those really developmental years, um, have that exposure and that experience. So it's really, I think when I, when I think about my childhood, I think about like two really not extreme as an intense word, but two far ends of a spectrum mm-hmm. um, in terms of my experience that really gave me, gave me the tools that I still use today, which is the ability to connect with people, the, the ability to engage, to still um, celebrate the uniqueness of others, but in a way that doesn't diminish myself, which has, has definitely become a theme that's gotten even stronger in life of really knowing, loving, 
appreciating uh, the lens that I have and the things that when I was a kid, you know, people would tell me you're, you're too sensitive, you're too shy, you know, these different things that now that I understand what it means to be, for example, a highly sensitive person, which everybody should, if you're not highly sensitive, you know, or love someone who is. So definitely look into that <laughs> um, and the, the gifts that those folks have. And um, to, to understand that as a superpower now, it, it really shines a different light on all those other experiences and circumstances that I encountered as a young person. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's interesting how we absorb experiences, information. Mm -hmm. We each have our own unique personalities and it's a journey. It's journey to know ourselves, much less anybody else, right? And so I'm aware of some of our unique qualities and how that serves us. And I'm being proud of that and what that looks like for you and putting that out into the world. Definitely, definitely. And I, I will also say, you know, in my, the earlier part of my life or my childhood, as I mentioned, I was the youngest of, of four kids. I was the youngest cousin. You know, I was really doted on, protected, um, shielded in, in so many ways. And then when I got into early adulthood, there was this real shift in my family circumstances and family dynamic, which sort of put me in the position of the caretaker, mm. right? And the organizer for not only one person in my family, but multiple members of my family due to mental health and just some different, you know, uh, circumstances there. So it's interesting because I, I want to be sensitive. This, I, I don't think that this statement applies to traumatic experiences. I want to make sure that that's clear, but I do think that outside of something that is um, so egregiously traumatic, for the most part, we I like to think that we are faced with experiences uh, at the right time to develop something in us that we're going to need later on in life for whatever reason, right? And so had I just gone on being that, that kid that was doted on and that extended all throughout my adult life, I don't know that I would be as, as well-versed in the ways in which systems work and the ways in which our society and uh, healthcare and like all of these different things kind of converge, especially based on our different identities. Like I wouldn't have that had I not gone through that firsthand so many times, right? Throughout my twenties and thirties. So I just wanted to name that um, because I think it's, it's a really important component of like what makes me me when I look back on my journey. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. Really appreciate that. And that insight, because that is so important when you think back on your own journey where you are today in those transitions that were so impactful and meaningful and that led to the next steps of your journey and having that, that awareness about yourself, culture, society, uh, program systems. So it really gave you, it kind of opened up that view for you and really led to some of the next steps. So let's get to some of those questions that led to some of those next steps about culturally aware feedback training. So this is something that you do. So let's talk about yes. that a little bit. Oh, that's, it's like my other little baby. It's the <laughs> one that I co-parent with my business partner, Michael. Um, but absolutely, yeah. I mean, that was really born from the need that we observed in so many organizations that we have worked with um, over the last several years that you know, in order to even be able to get an organization to a place where you can start to surface some of these 
more charged or more sensitive topics around diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, um, around identity, right? That is hard to do anyway, regardless, even if you're in the healthiest organization uh, that has great communication and, and, and all of that. And, and what we noticed is that, ooh, actually most organizations and most teams don't already have a strong foundation of feedback that already exists. And if they think that they do, they've done some feedback training that doesn't take identity into account, that doesn't take um, our biases into account and doesn't take power dynamics into account. So we wanted to really design something that did all of that and was really helpful and worthwhile investment or a primer for the deeper DEI work that eventually organizations that we work with want to be doing, right? So that's how the culturally aware feedback program was born. And it's it's actually it really indicative of the type of work that, that Michael and I do at Liberation Labs, which I'm happy to talk more about. That was my next question. So that's a good lead into that. So you're the co-founder of Liberation Labs. So tell us more about this business. Absolutely. I'll back up a second and say that for the last, you know, three or four years, I've been, I've been working independently uh, as a consultant um, and a strategist with organizations focused on DEI. Like many in my field or in this field, um, I was losing steam. <laughs> uh, it was really tough for me to be in the, in the weeds with this work day in, day out, and to feel like I was doing it alone and sort of serendipitously um, Michael and I, who had met many years prior, crossed paths again and just started dabbling in projects together and just really recognized that we had differing identities, right? He is a white, uh, you know, Midwestern, male, queer individual who now lives in the Bay Area, right? I am none of those things. <laughs> um, so the fact that we have these like very different identities, but also shared values around compassion and clarity and joy, wanting to have joy and meaning in our work and bring levity to appropriate levity to our work. I think we, we just felt really right. Um, and I'll be candid, and this is something that Michael knows, so I'm not telling you a big secret here, but I was hesitant at first to actually partner with a white man, right? And to sort of hitch my, feel like I was hitching my wagon to to someone else in that way, particularly particularly a white man, right? So that took me a fair amount of time to process and to get to a place where that felt like the right decision for me. And that's, of course, who we work with and when, especially as a, in a partnership is a very personal decision. But for me, it felt like the right thing because of our unique lenses and, and because of the type of aspiring ally that Michael is that felt valuable to me in our dealings, even with clients, right? That there were some things that Michael could intercept and, you know, sort of like navigate or speak up or speak from his own experience or journey of learning in a way that could be vulnerable and also course correct in moments that we needed it. Right. So that's part of like how our partnership sort of came to be in terms of what really excites us. We want to always think about how we're helping organizations weave DEI really into the fabric of what they do versus continuing for years on end for DEI efforts to feel like these siloed projects, the pet project of 
you know, one person or a handful of people, because the truth is, is that that permeates your employees can, can feel that if the work is siloed in those ways, it's like, okay, well, what's the connection? Um, it doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel meaningful. Right. And employees, by the way, right now, I just read something the other day that said something like 80% of employees want to know that DEI is important to their employers. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is not something that's going away. <laughs> um, it's just a matter of like, we need to get even more uh, bold and even more, you know, demonstrate even more like how we're thinking about this in relationship to our organizational values, to our organizational mission, to strategic goals and business imperatives, right? To all of these things, to the well being of our people and our workforce, to employee retention. So that's not to say that DEI doesn't still need dedicated resources, um, but it's it's to say that uh, while we have DEI-centered offerings, we also offer programs and services that organizations may already be looking for that sort of helps them see right away how equity and inclusion can start to be integrated, right? While you're doing the work of assessment, while you're doing the work of creating a DEI strategy. Like these are things that we offer, things that you can do alongside all that. So those are things like culturally aware feedback, um, inclusive team retreats, right? How many times have we been to a retreat that's like, who designed this, right? It's like, what are the activities that we're doing here? Who designed this? Does this take many identities into account in the way that this is set up, right? I'll give you an example. Uh, an organization will plan a retreat that is, the agenda is jam-packed beginning to end, right? That's not conducive to a lot of people's communication styles, personality, sensibilities, right? Um, so how do we think about all that? So inclusive team retreats is another one. Equity-centered strategic planning is something that we do. Leadership training and development, right? Um, rather than getting, you know, having a company leader who is, you know, decades into their career and then trying to tack on inclusive leadership coaching, which we still do, of course, if it's needed, but how much better and more powerful would it be if folks who are moving into and growing into leadership roles, if they're getting some of that infused into their development and training at the outset, right? Rather than thinking about it as something I need to do afterward. So um, the other thing that we're also launching very soon, probably this week, are fractional services for areas like employee well-being and engagement. Um, so really looking at the employee experience holistically with equity and inclusion as really important pillars to that experience. Well, that is so much in relation to what you do, how you do it, and why it's important to you. And there is so much value there. And I love what you said, that you identify so many things about DEI. And one of the things that I think I haven't heard much of is that power differential. And that's so important because I think there's a lack of awareness that there's a lot of that power differential in regards to employer and employee. And what does that look like? What does that feel like? How is that, how is that experienced? And so mm -hmm. I'm glad that that's something that you're covering. And also you're covering all of this from a very holistic perspective. So I gained that from just what you described, which is really great, as well as an integrated perspective. And that is so valuable. As you said, you. it it's not something that's going away. It's something that should have always been there, but it's something now that's not just a hot button. That's something that's infused into the fabric of our society, culture, jobs, everything. 
And so exactly. it really is something that is a part of us and always has been, but now there's more of this awareness and, mm-hmm. you know, might, we might look at it and say, oh my gosh, this should have always been there. That's my perspective, right? This should have always been, but yes. at the same time, we have to start somewhere and thank goodness we have this awareness now and we we're beginning and it's programs like yours that are really integrated that take into the whole construct of values, understanding, leading with empathy and kindness, and just so many other things that you're really targeting here that it's not just a siloed program. It is part of the fabric. And that is a mindset shift because we're not just bringing people in for this training and we're going to go hurrah and everything's fixed. Uh-uh. Yes. No. Yeah. Magic wand. No. Yes. <laughs> it's a cultural shift, right? It's something in every company, every entity that you work with that has to have the shift in their culture. And it, again, comes from both employee and employer. And so, and how do, how do they work together? And so, and bringing Absolutely. that awareness and, and those, those strategies, goals, objectives, all of that into play when you're creating these programs and very holistic programs. So I love what you're doing out there. I want to get to another question here. You wrote, you recently wrote an article for the Harvard business review entitled creating psychological safety for black women at your company. What organizations tend to get wrong and how to get it right. I love this title. I think this is just so deep. And so there's so much that I'm sure you could say about it. Can you explain the gist of this article? Because it's such a rich title. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, Yes, where to start with with that. So it's as I was working with different organizations, I psychological safety is something that I was always talking a lot about and would talk about it through the lens of identity and the fact that our identities have impacted our experiences. And our experiences are inherently linked to, right, the degree of psychological safety that we feel when we enter into a space or, you know, engage with different people, right? And those, and that can be a, that's obviously a a varied experience. And so that was sort of part of the work that I was doing. And then I connected with my uh, incredible co-author, Agatha, uh, Agvenobi, who, uh, shout out to Agatha. Uh, and we, once we started digging deeper, she was asking herself, you know, some very similar questions. And what we really wanted to do was to shine a light on this concept. And first and foremost, I mean, our number one outcome when writing this article is we wanted to write something that validated the experiences of Black women. Something that, you know, If I were feeling in a situation with my manager that was really charged and I didn't have the words, because it is so taxing to provide feedback on every single situation, especially not knowing how it's going to be received. We wanted to create the thing that someone like us could immediately send to another person to say, please read this because it captures what I've been feeling, right? And so that is to say how... Black women and others from other uh, historically excluded groups or underrepresented groups need differentiated approaches to creating psychological safety in the workplace. And so that was our first outcome, validating Black women. And then we wanted to give some really clear tools and context 
for company leaders, uh, first the context in terms of like, why is this the case? Why do we need differentiated or tailored approaches? And so the article speaks to that and, and speaks to some, some research from uh, organizations or teams like Lean In, Black Women Thriving, which is uh, founded by uh, the incredible Erica Hines. We talked to Minda Hartz, who's a best-selling author uh, about you know her experiences with psychological safety and what she writes about. So giving that all that context and then really giving some solid solutions, right? Things that companies could start doing right away. And so many times we read articles like this and there's a focus on the individual, right? Here's what individuals can do to create more psychological safety for people on their team. And in this case, black women. Yes, great, love it. But <laughs> we wanted to flip the script a little bit and put the focus and the emphasis on organizations, scaling this, right? Infusing it, changing their standards as a whole changing the um, accountability systems, right? Because we didn't wanna leave it to chance. There's a line in the article that speaks directly to this. We didn't want it to leave it to chance. The experience of a black woman on your team is depend so solely dependent on the manager that she happens to get, right? Uh, is this manager somebody who is racially conscious, aware or not, right? And even within the same organization, we see the huge spectrum of experiences that someone might have based on who their manager is. So we really wanted to elevate the conversation to bring it to the organizational level and how to ensure that systems start to change and not just to focus on individuals and people. And there's been really a, an astounding response to the article. And I think we are just barely scratching the surface of where this conversation needs to go. Um, but it, it, there's just been an outpouring of yes, uh, this also resonates with me. This captures my experience. Um, I'm taking this to my leadership team uh, to talk about this. Or we talked about this as a, as a board last week. So thank you for writing this. So that's been really incredible to hear and to see from people as well. And, and we want to, like I said, continue the conversation around the article too. Oh, I think that's beautiful. I love it. I love where you're going with this versus system versus individual. So important yes. because it really has to do with the deep-rooted values of that system and where they are today with that. And if they're willing, if they're really willing to shift and make some changes as a system, and then what are those steps? Because in a system comes many personalities, many individuals, many different things. And a lot of, all of us have these different expectations. So how do we come together and we can look at it in a bigger context, our country, our cities, how do we do that, right, in that organization, in our cities, in our you know, countries, and so forth and so on. So that's some work. And it is. they're invested in doing that work and really integrating this into their system. It's so valuable. Mm -hmm. It's so important. Definitely. And definitely. And I will say, like, while we very intentionally focus this article and this effort on the experiences of Black women for a lot of reasons that we don't have enough time here to talk about. Um, but we do want that to also open the door to discussing the experience, the unique experiences of Black men, of uh, queer folks of color in the workplace, of uh, people with disabilities, right? Because this, there are so many layers to it and it's a complex conversation. 
uh, for sure. But yes, thank you for asking. I'm I'm always happy to be able to to talk about that now that it's out in the world. And it took us many months to do it. So um, I'm just glad that people can now read it and use it um, in, towards action. I love it. It's so important. And I just, the title was so impactful. So yes, I, it, it was of course a a must to ask you about it. <laughs> like, I love the title. And, and I, what I liked was the subtitle of the article, what organizations tend to get wrong and how to get it right. And what I really appreciate about this too, Viva, is many times in, let's say, like classroom sermons, you know, you'll be in there and you're like all inspired and you're like, yes, or an article. Yes, it's so good. But then you leave or you put the article aside and go, hmm, but it didn't give me any steps. Yeah. I don't understand. It fell short of giving me some steps to think about how I apply those might look different, but at least you're helping me with those next steps. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I love to inspire, but if you leave somebody with nothing to go on, then where are they supposed to go? Right. And it's just reading it for the sake of reading it, right? right? right. Which we've seen even since 2020, that so much of that has happened, right? Learning for the sake of learning, and then nothing happens with the information, and then nothing changes. And it's almost, it's almost like, why even have read the thing then? <laughs> you know, and, and Agatha and I were, almost, were actually talking about this the other day, which is that um, we really didn't want this to be an article like that. We didn't want it to just be sitting there collecting, you know, proverbial dust. Right. We want it to be something that people bookmark, that people take to that next meeting that they have with their board or with their leadership team or the, the one-on-one that they have with their, their manager or their direct report, right? We want it to be something that people use and continue to reference and that it serves as a platform for getting to the work and actually doing the work of change, right? Yeah. Even if an organization only takes one or two ideas from that article, that would still be something in the right direction, right? We hope that they take many things from it or that it sparks dialogue, but even that would be a great start. So I want to really encourage people to, of course, read the article and share it with others and try some of what's in there um, to start making change. Absolutely. Love it. Thank you so much. So we've covered a lot of ground here. We've been through a lot of your journey. We could talk for hours. I know that we could. (laughs) (laughs) I have the rest of the day. What do you, what do you have going on? (laughs) I wish I did. So as we come to the close of the interview, my last question is, if you were to leave the listeners with one piece of advice, what would it be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually going to bring it back to what we're talking about uh, at the start, which is just that reminder or really encouraging that trust that each of us has something very special that only we can offer. No one else on the planet can do what you need to do in this world and the way that you can do it. And so while that kind of sounds a little bit, I don't know, for some people that might sound a little bit trite, I think it's it's really important because when we really believe this about ourselves and about people around us, we move differently, we speak differently, we work differently. Um, and it's really easy. And I, many times throughout my life, I have let that seed of knowing, even though I had it as a small child, I let it go unattended or let it get drowned out by circumstances or people I was dating. That's probably a topic for another, <laughs> another <laughs> podcast too, but I let it go. Right. I didn't, I didn't tend to it. And so, um, nurturing that is what I would say is, 
is what I want to leave people with. And the fact that if you are really nurturing that, it doesn't really matter what your position is, what your title is. I, I talk to friends about this all the time. I could be fulfilling my purpose as a barista, right? I, I oh, mean, yeah. I could, I could be um, helping people and like bringing people joy and helping them feel seen no, no matter what, as a childcare worker, there are just so many things I could do, right? But, but just that knowing, I think is different. There's this Rumi quote that I love that says, um, when you do things from your soul, you feel a river moving in you, a joy. And for me, that really means doing things from that place of knowing and that trust in our unique gifts. So that's, I think the biggest the biggest thing I want to leave people with. And then there's also this story, the last thing I'll say <laughs> for the sake of time is there's a story about Alicia Keys and you can, people can Google it and, and look up the, the background on the story, but it's, she was asked a question by someone and they asked her, they, they were mentioning something that she was doing and she turned and looked at them and said, um, I do what the F I want. Right. And I think well, first, I love a, um, and you and I have talked a little bit about, I love a well-timed and purposeful F-bomb in general. <laughs> um, yeah. But just that concept of like, especially as a woman to say, sure, you can question me, but I do what I want, when I want, how I want, I think just brings a different degree of security and confidence. And that is linked back to that, that seed of knowing too. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you, Viva, for joining me on the Core Women podcast today. Thank you, Summer. I love chatting with you and hopefully it won't be the last time. Oh, it definitely won't be. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow Viva Asmalash on LinkedIn and Instagram. Thank you for joining us on the Core Women podcast with Dr. Summer Watson. We're so glad you're here and would love to connect more with you. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Core Women and on Twitter at Core Women One. For more about Core Women and Dr. Watson, visit corewomen.com. Want more support and resources for amazing women like you? Great. Join Dr. Watson and Jen Fontanilla at the Life, Love, and Money Collective, a Core Women production that aids in understanding the key traits that might be getting in the way of living a life that you are absolutely passionate about. Connect with Summer and Jen and find out more at thelifeloveandmoney.com.